Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we do make that our prayer today. Lord, help us. Help us make it a reality. Lord, help us to build our lives on, on you, the firm foundation, on your love, the thing that never changes. Speak to us now as we open up your word. Would you give us your wisdom in every part of our life? This is our prayer. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, I'm curious, just by a show of hands, um, how many of you are familiar with or at least have heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Uh, If not, uh, what happened was back in the 1970s, I think, a group of researchers set out uh, to learn when children learn delayed gratification. Some of you are like, I never learned that. Um, and so what they did is they, they brought in kids, normally five-ish years old, and, and they had, the, had them sit in a room, and they put a single marshmallow in front of them, and they told them that if they waited 15 minutes, they could get a second marshmallow. But if they didn't wait, they could only get the one. And then they left the room, and they kind of just waited to see what happened. And people have, have copied this. Maybe you've seen videos of this before, and you can kind of just see the kids process this, and, and some of them are just like anguished, and you can see it in their face. They're like, I really want the second marshmallow, but I don't want to wait. Maybe we should do a quick poll. Um, total honesty time, no judgment one way or the other. When you were five years old, how many of you think that you would have the mental fortitude to wait 15 minutes? Just show of hands. Anybody? <laughs> a lot of honest people here. All right. I don't think I would even wait, and I'm 31, so that makes sense. But what's fascinating about this experiment is, is they did a follow-up with these kids years later, and they found all of these markers of a successful life, that the kids who waited were more likely to be physically healthy, to have done better in school, to be less prone to addiction, to have better social skills. In other words, self-control made a difference in living well in the world. That is our focus of our study today, the relationship between wisdom and self-control. Those of you that have been following along know this, how we've been taking this summer to explore the book of Proverbs, the series that we're calling The Pursuit of Wisdom. And, and so far, we've looked at topics like family and work and temptation. Last week, we looked at friendships. And, and every time, our goal is the same, to invite God's wisdom into that particular part of our life, that we would be people that would be marked by and shaped by the wisdom of God. And so today we turn our attention to this intersection between wisdom and self-control. And just for our purposes today, this is the definition I want to suggest to you as we think about what it means to have a self-controlled life. Here's what I want to suggest, that for the Christian, self-control is the ability to bring every part of my life under the rule of the Spirit of God. To be self-controlled is to grow in my ability to live, to act, to speak, to think, to bring everything, and to give it to him, to surrender to him, to not be controlled by my own emotions, or my own habits, or my own desires. That my life would be built on his foundation. Here's the assumption that I'm making going into today, that this is something that we can all be better at. Isn't that true of you? I know it's at least true of me. Haven't you done this before where you've said something and as you were saying it, you wish you wouldn't be saying it and you're like, try to get it back and it's too late? Haven't you done something and as you're doing it, you know that it is not bringing you closer to Jesus, but you just can't help yourself? Haven't you been stuck in a habit 
caught up in temptation, trapped in addiction. This is something that all of us who want to become wiser can grow in, isn't it? And so this is our goal today, to look at the wisdom of Scripture and recognize our need of self-control. The nature of self-control and to look to the name of self-control. We'll start with the need. The need of self-control. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 25, uh, verse 28, and we're going to bounce around as we have been throughout the wisdom of Scripture. Proverbs 25 says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Then look to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Uh, In the last uh, couple of weeks or so, it feels like a switch has gone off in the Scavato house where our son has decided that he is now a toddler. I don't know who told him that he was allowed to do this. Most of the things have been really fun and cute and great, but, but one thing that he has recently learned is the art of the temper tantrum. Uh, his emotions are just so big, and, and he just hasn't learned how to control them yet. The, the other day, he cried. He, he threw himself to the floor just screaming because I closed a door. Like, that's all I did. He, there was nothing interesting behind the door. He never wanted to be behind the door before, but I closed the door, and this was the end of the world for him. And he just threw himself on the floor. And so I did what any good parent would do. I grabbed my Bible and I preached this proverb to him. (laughs) And I said, son, look at your walls. He's lucky to have his mom. (laughs) But but that's been the the picture in my head, at least, of of self-control and what it means and the need that we have of it, even as a young age, but also for us today, isn't it? We see this from both Solomon and Paul, the importance, the the need that we have to grow in self-control if we want to live well. And so in these verses, we see just two descriptions of our need. First, that self-control defends us, and second, that self-control motivates us to run our race. Look again at that proverb, chapter 25. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into, left without walls. Now, we might read this a little bit differently than those who were hearing this and Solomon when he wrote it. Maybe when you think of a wall, you think of division or separation or or retreating from the world. That's not what he's trying to get at here. For Solomon, the walls of a city were essential to its protection and its survival. In fact, if you've studied it before, you know that this is Nehemiah's story. We're told this in Nehemiah chapter 1, that he heard that Jerusalem's walls had broken down, and as soon as he heard that, he wept, mourned for days, left everything behind to go rebuild them because he knew that his people were at risk. This is the point that Solomon is making, that part of wisdom is recognizing that this is the nature of sin. So often we think of sin this way, where it's something that I can manage. Where as long as I keep my sin in check, it's probably not that big of a deal, right? But over and over, Scripture says, no, sin is not something to manage. It is something to destroy because it is trying to do the same to you. 
sin is never content with a little corner of your life. It always seeks to attack, to invade, to break your walls down. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 10, that the enemy seeks to kill, to steal, kill, and destroy. And self-control is our first line of defense against it. Maybe for you, this is the first step to a self-controlled life. Maybe you need to look at your life, to look at your city walls, and to ask yourself if there is a place that you are vulnerable. Or put it this way, if you were your own enemy, where is it that you would first look to attack? Is there a habit that you just can't seem to shake? A temptation that you're susceptible to? Are there emotions or distractions or desires that you know are looking to advance? Is it anger? Anger that you hold on to that is just taking over your life? Is it an addiction, something you need accountability in? Is it jealousy or comparison or lust or fear? You know your life. You know the state of your city. Is there something that needs to come under the rule of the Spirit of God? Self-control defends us. Here's the second need that we see, that self-control motivates us to run our race. Look again to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And then verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Now, if you're uh, newer to scripture or, or not familiar with Paul's writings, this is actually a theme that he returns to over and over again, that to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is not just this one-time moment of salvation and then waiting around to go to heaven. It is a race to run. It is a daily calling that we have been given to make the kingdom of God known in my life and in the world around me. This is what it means to run the race, to live in the present with eternity in mind. Craig Rochelle, who's a a pastor out in Oklahoma, puts it this way. He says that discipline is choosing what you want most over what you want now. This is why Paul uses this idea of athletics, this metaphor that he uses of someone training for a race. Those of you that run or, or train or value physical fitness, you know this to be true, don't you? Aren't there times where the last thing you want to do is wake up and go exercise? Aren't there days when you've had a long day at work and you just want to go home and eat junk and go to bed? That's what I do every day. It's awesome. (laughs) And you just feel like you have to just drag yourself to the gym, but you do it because you know that if you are going to reach your goal, you have to discipline yourself to look to what matters most and not just what matters now. Self-controlled people live in the present with the future in mind. And this is Paul's point that the same thing is true in our faith. He tells us that we must exercise self-control in all things. In other words, to follow Jesus is to train our bodies, our minds, our feelings, every part of who we are. To live in the present, looking to the future. Self-controlled people live not just for what they want now, but what they want most. They prioritize the eternal over the earthly, and they eliminate anything that slows down their race. 
There's a pastor, his name is Skip Heitzig out in uh, New Mexico. He puts it this way, that a good thing becomes a bad thing when it keeps you from the best thing. Solomon talks about this uh, in the proverb, actually right before the one I read earlier. I don't have a slide for it, but he, he just says, it is not good to eat too much honey. Isn't that a weird verse to put right before ours, but doesn't it make sense too? See, wise people recognize that even too much of a good thing can slow my pursuit of Jesus down. It's good to rest. Not a bad thing, not a sin to watch TV or spend time on social media, but haven't you felt those things' desires to keep you from time that you said you'd spend with God? It's good to be informed, not a sin to take in the news, but haven't so many of us taken in so much that we're too stressed and overwhelmed to love our neighbor? It's good for our kids to play sports and join teams and build friendships, but how many of those things threaten to take over our family's entire life? Wise people recognize that even good things can keep us from the best thing. To be self-controlled is to live in the present with eternity in mind. Okay, that's our need for self-control. Let's look then at the nature of self-control. The other day I was thinking about the parts of my life where I need self-control the most. It was not a short list. Um, But one of the things that came to mind over and over was my driving. Uh, I think I'm never like Jesus less than when I get cut off while I'm driving. Uh, Apparently, I'm not alone. In fact, according to one study, 82% of drivers admitted to experiencing road rage in the last year. That is up over the last 10 years by 500%. Isn't that such a good stat for the state of our world? 500%. They asked people the most common things that they had uh, experienced or seen or, or done, and, and number one was uh, honking your horn. 50% of people said they had done that. I don't even consider that road rage. I think I did that on my way here today. <laughs> I, w- I was just hoping it wasn't one of you guys, and <laughs> sorry if it was. But I related to, to these next verses, though, as we talk about the, the nature of self-control, but also the difficulty that we so often have to show it. Look with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 16. In verse 32, it says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And then Galatians chapter 5, The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So notice this with me. Notice that scripture describes self-control in two different ways. It describes it as a skill, a strength, something that is even better to have than physical strength like a warrior. And yet also it is described as a gift, the fruit of the Spirit, something that God produces in us, not something that we muster up ourselves. Do you see why this matters? It matters because whether it's our driving or our words, or our thought life, or our emotions, or our desires, all of us have some sort of self-control problem. And the danger in us talking about this is that it would be so easy to make our faith nothing more than just a burden of good behavior. Where Christianity, for so many people, is nothing more than mustering up the willpower to say no to all the things that I secretly want to do. 
forcing myself to say yes to all the things that I don't really want to do. And in the middle of it all, there's guilt for all the times that I've failed. Have you lived this kind of faith before? Have you done this where, where you've tried over and over again to just be strong enough to say no to your desires on your own and maybe you thought you were making progress and then you slipped and it feels like you're all the way back to square one? Haven't you tried to force yourself into good habits? Doesn't it seem sometimes that, that your heart is split in two and, and part of you really wants to follow God and do what he says and part of you doesn't? Part of you loves the things of the world and all that it can offer you. What do we do about that? What do we do when it seems like self-control isn't something that I can do by myself? Uh, Thomas Chalmers was a, a Scottish preacher and author and professor back in the 1800s. He talked about this idea uh, in a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I've never come up with a sermon title that cool. <laughs> This one's called Wisdom and Self-Control. That's, that's all you get. But in this sermon, he, he talks about uh, th this idea, what so many of us have struggled with, this tension between what Scripture calls the flesh and the spirit, where, where our heart is split and part of us wants to uh, be set on the things of the world and part of us wants to overcome it, and, and it just seems like we're so often stuck. This is what he says. The quote's a little bit long, but, but stay with me. He says this, that there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. He goes on to say the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. In other words, if I lost you along the way there, if you want to be a person that is marked by self-control, if you want freedom from the things that are holding you back, if you want the discipline to run the race that is before you, there is no amount of strength that you can just summon up on your own. There's no amount of willpower that you can muster up, then there is no amount of guilt that you can feel that will ever be enough. Self-control is not about forcing yourself to be a better person because you know you should. It is about a new affection. It is about growing in love for who Jesus is and what he has done for you. It's about remembering just how much he has done and rejoicing in the fact that I once was lost and dead in my sin and now I am found. It's about understanding his love and remembering his compassion and experiencing his grace. It's about rejoicing that he does not declare me to be an enemy, but a friend. When we do that, our heart is given something so much greater to latch on. This is what self-control is. It's about declaring that as much as I might want the things of this world, I want to have Jesus more because I know he is better. This is the secret of self-control, that, that it doesn't come from the self. It is a practice 
but it is also a gift. It is about the Holy Spirit living in us and producing. Uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It comes from him. And this is what wisdom recognizes, that that self-control does not come from forced behavior, but a transformed heart. If today you are struggling with temptation, if there is something that you are just stuck with, can I suggest to you that more than you need determination and more than you just need willpower and definitely more than you need guilt, you need a growing love and affection for who Jesus is. Spend more time focused on him than on your weakness. Delight in who he is. Surround yourself with reminders of what he has done. He will become bigger. The desires in your heart for this world will get smaller. And discipline will become easier. And self-control will not be a burden. It will be a joy because he has transformed your heart. This is the nature of self-control, a practice that we participate in and a gift. Last, we'll look at the name of self-control. The name of it. Uh, Let me read uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Then Hebrews 2, for because he himself, that's Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Remember what we talked about earlier, how uh, this idea of a fortified city meant safety and protection. And what Solomon is saying here is that this is the source of that safety. Not any weapon, not any physical wall. It is the name of the Lord that the righteous run to, and they are safe. Those of you that are parents, maybe you uh, know this feeling or can remember this feeling of your kids being afraid or being in pain and running to you because they knew that they would be safe. This happened to me the other day. Uh, Luca was playing, and, and our dog was behind him, and our doorbell rang. And our dog just started barking his head off, and it scared the daylights out of him. And immediately, without me doing or saying anything, he got up, and he just ran right into my arms because he knew that he would be safe. And this is the picture of God that we are given, that when we are weak or hurt or when self-control feels like this impossible standard when we have failed or messed up, that God's arms are open wide. That he wants to be a refuge for you. This is the last thing I want you to see today, that we can put our trust and we can turn to Jesus because he is the perfect example of a self-controlled life. This is what the author of Hebrews was getting at. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, that because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, when we experience this struggle, when our heart feels split, when our walls feel vulnerable, and when we call on Jesus, we call on someone who knows what it is to be tempted and who is a perfect example of self-control. Do you remember what it says in, in Matthew 26, Jesus, right before his betrayal and his death, crying out to his father, that if there's any other way, take this cup from me. That's what he wanted now. But what did he want most? 
not my will, yours be done. We see this again in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, the author of, of Hebrews talks about this, how um, that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the source. This is the motivation for self-control, for Jesus and for us. It's joy. Jesus persevered. Jesus was given strength because he saw clearly the joy that was set before him. The joy of being reunited with his Father in heaven. The joy of being reunited with you if you put your faith in him. We can turn to Jesus because Everything he did was done with eternity in mind. Every action, every thought, every word was surrendered to the will of his Father. Every day was spent running to make the kingdom of God known. We can turn to him when we're weak and when we've messed up because it was his self-control that brought us back to the Father. This is the way that self-control enters our lives, when our desire to do the will of God becomes greater than anything else that the world can bring. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Call on the one whose name is a strong tower. Look to the joy that is ahead of you. A perfect reunion with the God who created you and loves you unconditionally. That's what we're going to do today as we come to the table for communion. Our worship team's going to come up, and, and as they do, it's good to spend time each month remembering this moment, this moment of Jesus' love, this moment of his sacrifice. We're told on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, he took bread, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this and remember me. Later, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. A new promise. A new reminder of the lengths that I was going for you. Of the joy that I saw and the sacrifice that he has made. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to remember him. A few instructions, as we always do. Uh, we believe here at Chapel Street that this is not our table, it's God's table. You don't have to be a member to come and remember this. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are welcome. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then after I do, uh, I just want to give you a moment just to reflect. Reflect on the goodness of God. Reflect on if there's an area of self-control, an area where your walls are weak. We're told in Scripture that the way to do communion wrong is to not think about what you are doing. And so do that. Take a moment. And then as you're ready, you can come up to the front and you can take the elements. We'll have you come up the center aisle and then return back out the sides. Take a moment of reflection and of prayer. And then when you're ready in your seat, you can take the elements on your own. You don't have to wait for me to come back up or, or anything else. 
and we'll close our time worshiping God together. If you're unable to make it up here for any reason, our ushers are available with prepackaged elements. Just put your hand up and they'll bring those to you. Now would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the example of love and self-control that we see whenever we look to you. Lord, I do pray that for those of us that feel stuck in a habit or trapped in temptation, Lord, that your grace would fall on us now. Lord, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your love. Would you help us? Would your Holy Spirit work in us that you would be our desire and our affection greater than anything else? Lord, we thank you for what this table represents. Give us clarity of mind as we remember you. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can come as you're ready. Amen. So good to sing together as a church family. Uh, if we can be praying for you, as always, anything going on in your life, our prayer team will be up here in the front in just a moment. If you came prepared to give, you have boxes on the way out. You can give online as well. Thanks so much for those of you that do that. And now receive today's benediction. Would you go now in the name and the power and the self-control and the glory of Jesus Christ? Go assured of his goodness, filled with affection for what he has done for you, a beloved son and daughter of the king. Amen.